No need to whine and slimy balloons up. Have some wine and join us on the Whiny Palooza Podcast with Rebecca Green. Welcome to the Whiny Palooza Podcast. I'm your host, Rebecca Green. I'm a wife, mother of three, and licensed clinical social worker. I also have three fur babies at home, too. My passion has always been to help children and their families. I always dreamed of being a wife and a mother. Parents are always learning through their struggles, failures, and successes and joys. I am no stranger to this wild ride of parenting, and I know behind every great parent lies a team of supportive friends and family. I want to be part of your support system. I want you to know that you are not alone. We are in this parenting world together. Join me every week for insightful discussions with experts on parenting and marriage, as well as other parents who have found the secret to successes in parenthood. You'll learn tips and tricks to make life with your family better than ever. I hope you will follow along with me while we dive into what it takes to achieve a happy family. Hello, everyone. This is Rebecca Green for the Whiny Palooza podcast, and I'm very excited today because I have the wonderful, fabulous Marcy Glidden Savage here with us today. Marcy, thank you so much for doing this with me today. Thank you, Rebecca. I'm happy to be here. Thank you. Marcy is so many things. She's an author. She's a mental health advocate. She is the CEO of a family-owned packaging supply company. After experiencing the catastrophic impact of suicide twice, Marcy emerges as a fierce proponent for eliminating the social stigma attached to mental illness, which keeps many individuals battling depression and anxiety from seeking help. Marcy lives in Southern California, where she enjoys spending time with family and friends, traveling, and endless hours of genealogy research. Well, that sounds fascinating. I am. I would just like to pause before I ask you all the important questions. Um, I'm very jealous that you are in sunny California. <laughs> well, it, as I look out my window, it is. I can see snow on no. local Southern California mountains, which it, it happens a couple of times every couple of years so it's cold in uh, sunny southern california it's not today i'm shocked and you just you already taught me something i didn't know there was snow in southern california yes yes Uh, it got down to you know 2500 feet so we have local mountains and it's beautiful to look at it won't last long but you know it's cold today By oh our standards. <laughs> well, I'm far away from you in freezing Buffalo, New York, and I'm counting down to spring and summer. Yes, I bet you are. <laughs> so, so Marcy, take us back in time. I want to know how, what ended you today? What brought you here today as an author and mental health advocate? Tell us the story that brought you to us today. Okay. Well, in, um, 2000 and August of 2014, uh, I came home from work one day and um, uh, found my husband outside on the back patio, um, dead um, by suicide after 34 and a half years of marriage. And 
actually 40 years together because we dated when we were at UCLA. I can't, I can't even imagine that moment. No. I can't even, I can't even go there with you. I just. It, um, it takes, well, you know, things really do slow down in slow motion and, you know, your brain is just not equipped certainly to, you know, to understand what you're, what you're seeing. And, um, you know, we were madly crazy in love. We had a fabulous marriage. Our, our business had had the most successful year, uh, you know, a new, uh, 18 month old grandson. It, it, life was wonderful. So clearly, um, my husband suffered for something that was so far buried and, and deep that most, most of us, if not all of us, certainly couldn't see this, this coming. Mm. And, um, you know, I would have done anything to have helped. I would have walked through fire for him. Uh, I expected to grow old and be in rocking chairs. And this was it. I wanted a 50th wedding anniversary. I yes. Mean, um, but it wasn't to be. And <sighs> I jumped uh, completely into mom mode. My, I have three children. Um, two of them were in their uh, mid to late 20s. One was um, 31. And I felt like I needed not only to try to protect my husband's reputation, but my, but my children, they became my only priority. Uh, their hurt and their pain and their grief, um, mine pales in comparison to watching them grieve. Mm. And they had, you know what, they had lost one significant parent and I wasn't going to let them lose another one. Wow to that. I, I'm impressed. I'm already impressed. <laughs> well, I'm sure anyone, given the circumstances I was in, any mom, you know, would just jump in. And, you know, certainly I, I wanted to fall in bed and cry and grieve losing, you know, the love in my life. But we also uh, ran a business together and we had employees and uh, customers and vendors and, and so I didn't get the luxury of falling into bed. Mm -mm. Although looking back on that, I'm, I'm actually glad I didn't because I was forced from the very get go to start making some steps forward whether it was just showing up at the office and, you know, doing what I needed to do and then going home. But, you know, looking back, those were steps forward. And uh, I didn't write this book after that. Um, I, I didn't, I, I didn't even think about it. And then I, you know, slowly as, you know, started, I wanted to live again. I, I, I was only 57 at the time and I didn't die and, and my life I didn't feel was over. Um, the love I had for my husband was never gonna go away, but I felt like I had life to live. 
And so, you know, I eventually started dating and uh, I fell in love again, very open and honest with what I had been through and um, got married. It was a tough go with family and friends and my kids, but, you know, I, um, I felt like um, a woman again. I felt like I was out in the world and I, I could participate. I could contribute that I just didn't have to be this grieving widow all day right. long. And uh, we were married in July of um, 2018. And eight months later, um, I came home again one day to, to fortunately no one being there, but um, but soon learned that um, my second husband, Michael, had driven to Palm Springs, checked himself into a hotel, and um, overdosed. Mm. And here I was again. And I thought, not only do I not want to do this again, I can't do it again. I felt like I just couldn't. I can't, I can't even believe, I mean, when I read your story, I couldn't, I mean, to have it happen once, but you had it happen twice. Like, I can't even imagine. It's a, a small, very small niche. I, you know, certainly after Paul died, I, I did a lot of, you know, Googling. <laughs> Let me get my hands on anything I could read, any, anybody, any blogs, any of uh, losing a husband um, by suicide. Yeah. And there were. There were plenty, unfortunately. Twice, uh, two husbands. I absolutely, I Googled it and nothing came up. Probably one of the scariest moments for me. I mean, I've never sat down and not Googled something. Right, something right, right, right. But nothing. And and I, I had a completely different experience from those around me. Uh, with the different deaths. And to me, Rebecca, I had lost, I really didn't care at that time how, how they died. They died. I lost love. I lost my partner. I lost, again, my world imploded. Like, happens when you lose a spouse. It's a, you know, it's the number one stressor on the, the index. And uh, so I wasn't worried about or thinking how they died, I, I, but those around me were. And I learned very quickly that it's the only type of death that your loved one's character is judged. Their whole life is evaluated and looked at. And um, the questions around you have an undertone of uh, as though the family has some sort of accountability. Oh, gosh. You know, uh, did, didn't you see anything? Couldn't you have seen anything? And, and I will tell you, um, I wrote this book um, and finished it during COVID. And I included the word asymptomatic in my book because that's what they were. They were asymptomatic for the depression and anxiety 
that was hiding uh, within them. So, so my understanding is that they were suffering inside and they weren't sharing anything with anybody. That's correct. They were not sharing anything. And uh, Paul had, my, my, my first husband was a very type A personality, entrepreneur, hugely loved, literally coach, um, everyone in the community, neighbors loved him. He was the dad that was out skateboarding with the kids on the street. Um, and so, you know, sometimes people that suffer from depression or anxiety and, and such, it becomes a fabric of who they are. And so they've learned to live with it. They've learned to manipulate it. They've learned to sit, to spend so much energy on keeping that hidden that they don't have any energy left to help fix it or mm -hmm. do any part of, you know, seeking help. And certainly for men, it is uh, hugely, um, a you know, the stigmas really envelop them. You know, you're going to be weak. Why can't you man up? Oh, you know, gosh. all of those things for us women, it's a little bit different. We, we have a tendency to talk about, you know, we're anxious or depressed. We've got girlfriend groups and, you know, it's, it's better for us, but men, men don't for the most part. They, they don't. And I think, I think what you're saying is that they don't speak up because of the stigma. Is that what you're explaining to us? Absolutely. <sighs> Absolutely. They don't want their family to, to see them uh, as weak or um, certainly their colleagues. Uh, I have, I believe wholeheartedly that most men, um, their, their self-esteem and their self-worth revolves around how they provide for their families, what they do for a living, way more than women. And um, the age group of you know fifty five to sixty five in men is a is has a pretty high rate of deaths by suicide. So so why do you think that is? Why is it that age? I think um, by that age, for men, I think they believe that if they haven't you know put their mark on on their careers or Michael, my, my um, second husband, was a, um, worked for a globally known uh, defense and aerospace company. Wow. And he had been through a lot of corporate takeovers in his career of 32 years. But at uh, 55, uh, he lost his job along with a couple of other directors in that age category. And, you know, you don't come across vice president and president and CEO uh, opportunities. They're few and far between. And I, I believe that that had a lot to do with uh, what happened. He and I were newly married. I was a little more financially stable than he, he had been through a a divorce and had a lot of alimony and, and such. And um, 
I, I didn't understand that the inequities, I didn't, I saw them differently. But I, I don't believe that he did. Um, and with, with Paul, you know, I don't know. Um, he had lost his father at a young age, never dealt with any of that. Um, but if there was ever a man who derived their self-worth from what he did and how he provided for his family, I would say Paul would be much at the top of the list. And, you know, to us, we just loved him. And, but I'm not sure he saw that always. Oh, if only we could go back and rewind the clock and change. And I, I don't, I don't even know, but um, help us, help us know what can we do differently? How can we talk about mental health, mental illness, suicide? Tell us how to change how we're discussing this stuff. Well, um, let, let me say, let, let me start with the family because the, the, we're the ones left behind. The, the stigma that kept, that, that keeps individuals from reaching out for help, you know, the stigmas are bad and they're real. And those stigmas now are no longer with them, but they fall onto the family. They fall onto the friends and the family and friends are left behind to, to explain. And I, after Michael died, I realized I, I need to say something because this just isn't right. Mm -hmm. If they had died, either one of them or both of a heart attack, if they had had ALS, if they had had horrible diabetes, uh, an incurable cancer, no one, no one around me or my children would have said, couldn't you have done something? Mm. Didn't you see that tumor inside? And couldn't you have gotten him to the doctor quicker? And, you know, none of that. Uh, they wouldn't have said, do you have any marriage problems? Oh, God. Uh, how any financial problems did that cancer cause i mean so you've had to justify yourself over and yes, over again over and over and over again and it adds so much it's painful to be loss is painful grief yeah. is horrible under any circumstances but you add an extra layer yeah and and i've said this um, to others you know, that have lost someone. I, I've said, you know, I just want your grief. <laughs> I just want that. Just the normal grief. Um, hard as it may be, just let me have that. This, uh, my daughter didn't seek any counseling for five years. Um, it, it is because, and, I, and I'll tell you, she said, I, I can't walk in. I want them to know who my dad was. Not what he, just what he did. <sighs> so um, I would say to anyone around those, 
treat, treat us just as if it had been any other death. Say, I'm sorry for your loss. Lean into their pain. Let them, you know, let the grievers say what they want and just listen. Just like everybody else. Yeah. Well, and it's, and it's so interesting because when I say in my head, I was having a conversation with myself about rewinding the clock. There may be nothing anyone could have done anyway, which is so terrible. No. And you, you know, you'll, you'll see, you know, the news um, spends a hot minute, you know, when, when a celebrity dies by suicide and, and then, you know, they'll flash a phone number and, you know, please call. And um, I pretty much, I, I don't know a hundred percent for sure, but I rather doubt either one of Paul or Michael would have called a number. Uh, to speak to someone anonymous like that. Um, as long as the stigma is around Rebecca, and as long as we treat this death differently, very differently, it's gonna continue. We can, we can have as many hotlines as you want. <laughs> yep. But that's not gonna change. You know, we've done a lot in, in our society to right some wrongs. Historically, we've come a long way. Not far enough, but we have. This area, we have absolutely done nothing. We've got a lot of work to do. We do, we do. And it starts with you and I, Rebecca, just sitting and having a conversation and you allowing me to share my heart and, and, and my experience and, and just communicating. That's where it starts. Well, and you're spreading this every time you talk to someone and every time someone reads your book, you're, you're doing a wonderful job helping to break the stigma. That's what I'm hoping. That's Well, and you said something interesting. You said that personifying grief helps you move past it. And I'm yes. so fascinated. Can you tell us what that means? Yes. Well, I had, um, I read, um, the book, uh, a book by Megan Devine, um, and she had put a, she does writing classes online, and she herself uh, had lost uh, her partner, um, and she was doing a writing class about grief. She asked her students, she said, you know, if you're writing a book, and you have a main character, you know, your write your readers need to know what that character looks like and talks like and what they eat and, and such. She said, so I want you to try to personify, make, take grief is no longer just an emotion. Grief is an entity mm. and tell your readers how you met grief. And it was almost like a, a light bulb moment for me. I thought, oh, wow. This is great. I mean, I don't have to carry all the time. I can I can take grief and 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 put her. I I believe for me she was a her. I can put her over here in this chair, and now I can talk to her. I'm not having these conversations in my head continually all day long. I I I can talk to someone, and so that's what I did. And for me, it 
it was life-saving really it was um because i could rage at grief and not just keep it silent i could actually physically you know yell in my house or or i could cry and i knew that grief was the only one who knew exactly how i was feeling every minute of the day mm. so eventually grief became not just my teacher but my friend and certainly my friend when michael died because everyone around me was rightfully so so angry that knowing what my family had been through and you know and that is the saddest thing because that's how deep and dark depression can be when you really you know can't the love of everything in your life goes away you you can't even hang on so that you know um grief became my friend she understood no one around me understood and nobody i would say don't don't please you know please don't be angry if you're angry at one person be angry at two people because I, and that's all i could say i couldn't I, I didn't have the words to explain why i was saying that but it so that is really what prompted me to write this story and i asked my children first and um they said yes and then i wrote a manuscript and i gave it to each one of them and said look i i'm telling my story i'm not going to tell yours that's yours um i will include you in here because i have children <laughs> but i'm not going to tell about your grief journey right uh you can do that when you want um and they gave me the okay um as hard as it is i mean this is the last thing i i want people to know about me but um i've been given this story and um you know my faith is big and i i certainly believe that god could have changed it in an instant uh the first one the second one both but for some reason, um, he didn't. And I know that's, it's not because he doesn't love me. <laughs> but if, you know, if I need to be a, the face of, of suicide loss, then okay. Okay. Well, you're helping people through sharing this difficult story. Um, tell everyone the name of your book. The name of the book is and no one saw it coming could that be a more could that be a more perfect title that you nailed it right there and no one saw it coming yes well how have you taken care of yourself oh. through the grief mm -hmm. what have you done for yourself Ooh, uh, the number one thing i would say to anybody I eventually, not at the beginning, 
but I eventually gave, gave myself permission to heal. That's key. For me, that was key. Um, I felt as though I was living in expectations of my children, my friends, rest of my family, and how they believed I should be healing and at what marker I should be at. Uh, and then I realized it really is my own journey. And I, ha I had to tell Marcy, it's okay, Marcy, you can heal. That doesn't mean you didn't love somebody. That doesn't mean you're going to forget somebody. That just means that you are also important. And you, you didn't lose your worth because your spouse is gone. And so that, that was a number that's, one. That's really, that's really good advice. Really good. It's my number one piece of advice. Yeah. To, to any, anyone suffering a loss, it's okay. It's okay to heal. It's okay. Now, what if somebody is listening whose partner is suffering, they see them suffering with anxiety or depression or both? Mm -hmm. Any advice for them? Know that it's real. Um, my first husband had an incident seven years before with um, an overdose of a sleeping pill, a prescribed sleeping pill, a very well-known one. And he, he described it as um, it was an out-of-body experience. And I certainly wasn't trying to kill myself. And how I can't even believe you think you guys think I did. And in seven years, he he really he had convinced uh, doctors, um, all of us, you know, uh, that that wasn't real and 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 such. And I I would just um, suggest to anybody um, the risk that the warning signs are not always there. None of not, my. Neither one of Paul or Michael had any of those warnings, you know, giving away things, talking about, no, none of that. But if you have any inkling, know that it's real. Know that there's help there for you, for the one around. If they're not going to get some help, you can get some help. You can get some, some guidance on um, how to deal with somebody with depression and, and perhaps maybe a little more insight in, instead of just a list of warning signs or risk factors. It's like any other disease, you know, heart disease. It, they may know uh, the risks they're taking. <laughs> yeah. And yet, you know, and yet they don't. So uh, they may not get help but you can get help and because we can't make, we can't make anybody get help. No. Right. No, no. Um, take care of yourself. 
love yourself, um, do what you need to do for you is what I would say to someone. And um, you're not alone. You're absolutely not alone. Millions of people. Um, I, I think it's like in the last couple of years, like 3.2 million attempt to die by suicide every year in the United States. Um, it's, that is so sad. It's, it, it is a mark on our society that we allow this, that we haven't really embraced. We need to do for mental health what we've done for cancer. Let's just not accept it anymore. And let's, you know, let's do what it takes. Let's have the conversation. Get rid of the stigmas. My gosh, they're, they're ancient. Stigmas. I agree. I agree. And let's march on Washington for this. Let's, because it is, it doesn't care what race you are. No. What your political aspirations are. It, it's an equal opportunity disease but it's a disease and we, we can do better. We have to do better, Rebecca, as, as, as we have to. There's yeah. teenagers that are dying. I know. Kids, our kids are dying at alarming rates and, and we can't let that happen anymore. Well, and it's so hard because you don't know what people are thinking. So I can say what I want till I'm blue in the face to all my loved ones but I don't know what they're thinking unless they tell me. Right. So hopefully somebody listening will reach out right. and we will make a difference today. Yes. Yes. And you know, they're worthy. <laughs> Whoever's listening is worthy and I'm going to do my best so that the person that's listening, it, it will see the change in this, conversation just like we saw you know during civil rights and and that sort of thing when people people really got serious about something and and were willing to talk about it and not be quiet um i would i would tell the person that's hurting you know what we're going to make a difference you don't need to be ashamed there's nothing to be fearful of you're worthy and the rest of us just haven't done a good job. And we will <laughs> hang in there. I was just, you know, my daughter's 13. And, and I don't know if you remember, but I remember how painful being 13 oh. was. It is like one of the roughest years. And it's you're a just, black hole. <laughs> right? You're just so uncomfortable in your skin. Yes. And I was trying to explain to her how I remember. And how our worth doesn't come from anyone around us, right? you know, and the teenagers are, are struggling. Adults are struggling. You know, we have to also generalize. I mean, I know some people suffer from really serious mental illness, but right. people are suffering and yeah. we need to give them help and we need to break the stigmas so that people don't feel weak reaching out. Because if you ask me, reaching out is a strength. Absolutely. I agree with you 100% on that. We just well, need everybody else around us to have the discussion you and I are having this morning. 
Yes. Yes. Mm -hmm. And and we're going to do our best and we're going to spread this. And you know that I can't thank you enough for your time this morning. This has been wonderful. Thank you. It has been a pleasure being here. I just, you're so comforting to talk to. And I really appreciate your listening, not only with your head, but your heart. And um, I appreciate it. Will you tell everyone where to find you and your book? Well, um, you can go to my website, which is marcysavage.com. You'll find some links to, you know, Amazon and all the rest. Uh, Some articles I've written and um, some other interviews that I've done, if your people are interested in that. Um, I do have a couple of um, (laughs) blog posts, but I'm really... (laughs) not very good at uh, being committed to that. That's something that I really kind of want to do. <laughs> it's like, I want to do yoga. Maybe one day I will, <laughs> but um, it's there. And um, uh, you can reach out to me at info at marcysavage.com. And um, I'm always uh, open to hearing uh, from people. And if there's a way that my words um, just the fact maybe that I even wrote the book, if that's helped in any way, then I'm, I'm on the right path and I'm doing what I'm supposed to do. And I'm not afraid of my story. I loved two great men and they died from an illness, just like other people die from illnesses. And that's how I want them to be remembered, not by just one act. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, thank you for having this hard, important conversation with me today. Thank you. Thank you. I so appreciate you, Rebecca. I appreciate what you're doing and I hope it gets warm pretty quick where you're at. (laughs) I'm I'm going to, I'm going to keep counting down and I'm going to count on you to send me some sun. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) This is Rebecca Green reminding everyone to spend every day laughing, learning, and loving. Thank you for tuning in to the Whiny Palooza podcast. If you like what you heard, please be sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. While you are there, leave a review. I love to hear your feedback. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time. This show has been produced by Market Domination, LLC. To discover how you can have your own show completely done for you and turn it into a real published book and become the authority in your marketplace, go to www.marketdominationllc.com slash podcast offer. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.